We're going to jump into Acts, if you guys want to hit my lights for me. Uh, two weeks ago, we were in Acts chapter 11, and uh, I told you at that time, I said, we're going to, we're going to, we got something here, we're going to jump out of it, and then we're going to jump right back to this story. And so I'm going to re- do a little bit of review in Acts chapter 11. And in fact, I think that if you don't have your Bible with you, I think there might be one in front of you. And if you wanted to find your Bible and look in Acts 11 for hints, because I'm going to ask some questions, because my school year might be done, but I still like to ask questions of my classroom. And so if you could pay attention and see if you can pick up on some of these answers. So Acts chapter 11. Now, when I preach through Acts 11, and go down to verse 19, okay? So that's kind of where, where we're going to start with the, our little review here before your big final exam, Okay? Uh, I preached on this, and we talked about, and I don't have, nope, nope, there we go. Uh, We talked about the first point was grassroots evangelism. So we're talking about the church in Antioch. So you had the church in Jerusalem, and the church had spread up to Antioch. And one of the things I said, I gave, I said, number one, about this church, we're just looking at this church in Antioch. I said, number one, we see some grassroots evangelism. In other words, evangelism, evangelism, that wasn't done by Peter, Paul, right? None of the big names aren't there. And so, in fact, if you'd like a little bit of a hint, if you'd like to look in Acts chapter 11, verses 19 and 20, see if you can tell me, just anybody, okay, this is very informal. Why do you think that I may have picked this title for this? And see if anybody remembers why I said that for this particular passage. Acts 11, 19 and 20 says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus, in Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who, uh, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. I remember what I, why I said this is grassroots evangelism. There's one thing in particular. Anybody remember? You guys are disappointing me. Yes. It was just ordinary people, wasn't it? I can always count on my mom. Uh, it was just ordinary people. Just, it doesn't say any names. They're just average Joes spreading the gospel, and they weren't following all the proper pro- protocol. In fact, we get into the second point that I gave, unbiased ministry. We hear them not sharing the gospel, not just to Jewish people, but to, but to everybody, Spe- specifies the Hellenists. Well, they hadn't heard the report from Peter that said that he'd gotten this vision that said this was okay. They're just doing it. They just had good news, and they're just sharing it with everybody that they run into. And so I talked about unbiased ministry, which means I've given away the hint. Why did I call it unbiased ministry? Because they're just sharing the gospel with everybody that they meet. We see then this third one, and when I gave this point to you the first time, I left a blank because I couldn't decide, and I finally decided. I just have to put all three of these in here. You see, definitive, grace-filled, long-term discipleship of this church. If I'm just taking a step back and studying this church, this Antioch church, you see this in this church right off the bat. Here's your hint if you'd like to look in Acts 11. Uh, why do you think I called it definitive di- discipleship? Does anybody remember it? Uh, if you're looking at Acts 11, 23, the 26, kind of glance down there. Yes. Yeah, uh, yeah, you, you see that. Uh, who did they send up to this church in Antioch? Who was it? Remember? Barnabas, right? Son of encouragement. They send Barnabas up, and he, he right off the bat, he, he sees the grace of God, it says, verse 23. He sees the grace of God, but then he exhorts them. 
he begins to tell them, this is what you ought to do. And then he goes and he gets Saul from Tarsus, and they, they, they go in this thing for the long haul. In fact, you see that with Barnabas, this grace-filled discipleship. It talks about him being glad. In fact, in all of the book of Acts, there's only one man in all of Acts that it calls good, and that man is Barnabas. Found this out a couple days ago. The only time that Luke ever refers to anybody as he was a good man, Barnabas. Barnabas just goes up just this grace-filled son of encouragement to this church in Antioch. And then it says that Saul and Barnabas stay with them for a year, long-term. Finally, brotherly love. So we're almost to the end of our review. There was a prophet named Agabus that came and prophesied, said there's going to be this famine. And this church decides to do something in regards to this famine. Does anybody remember what it was? And if you need a hint, you can look at verses 29 and 30. Remember what the church decides in Antioch, what they're going to do? Yes. Yeah, yeah, they take up a collection, right? They, they, in fact, it says, as many as had ability, according to their ability, they, they, gathered, they took up a collection. And then they actually send Saul and Barnabas down to those Judean Christians for that uh, exact purpose, to take care of them. So you see brotherly love. And so I was building up this, these four key elements Four ingredients, maybe, of a world-changing church. Maybe we could call it that. I'll come back to that in just a minute. But I mean, this is the church that God uses to change the world. It's not the mother church in Jerusalem. It's this church that changes the world. They're the ones that start, we're going to see in chapter 13, they're the ones that start overseas missions. We're going to see that coming up in this chapter. Before that, it had never been, they didn't even know what that was. So let's jump now to Acts chapter 12. And so this is going to pick up right at the end of our story the other day, uh, or last week. Verse uh, 24 of Acts chapter 12 says, But the word of God increased and multiplied. Now this, but the word of God increased and multiplied. What happened right before this? So we were up in Antioch talking about their church. And then we jumped over to uh, uh, Peter in Jerusalem and, and James and John. And we've got these other, the, the leaders of the church down in Jerusalem. We talked about a story last week. And uh, we summarized it on Wednesday by calling it the, the bad, the good, and the ugly. Or as another preacher called it, he called it escape, uh, or execution, escape, and eaten by worms. What happened? Anybody remember? Let's see, I'll, I'll, give, you some, I'll give you some pointers. What happened last week? We had James killed. Yeah. At the end, Herod died, right? All right, in the middle, we have the story of Peter being rescued from prison. So we got the bad, James dies. We got the good, Peter's rescued. And then the ugly, Herod dies in a very grotesque way in Scripture. And we have that story, and it ends with this statement, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Verse 25, And Barnabas and Saul, and so this is why that review comes, becomes important. Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem. What were they doing in Jerusalem? Taking the gift down, come on, people. Taking the gift down, right? We just talked about this a minute ago. Taking the gift down from Antioch, right? This, this tri- hey, we're, we're helping you out. So they've gone down to Jerusalem, and now what does it say? They're re- returned from Jerusalem. They're headed back up to Antioch when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now, this John Mark character we had mentioned last week, it was his mother's house that was having the church uh, prayer meeting for, for Peter. We also learn in Colossians 4.10 that Barnabas is actually his cousin, okay? So there's the 
the family connection there. So they return from Jerusalem. And so now I'm going to pause and say, okay, so I, I noticed this morning as I was studying one last time, going through everything, I thought, this, you know what the sermon feels like? It feels like I've got all these random threads, and I, I promise you at the end I'm going to tie them all together. Okay? So I know that already I can sense it. I can feel it. I'm just looking at your faces, and I can feel you going, I feel like just a bunch of random. Okay, so here we have this church in Antioch. Okay? They're up there. We have these four elements so far of a, this, this, this church. Now we're going to jump into back up into Antioch to pick up the rest of this. So here we have chapter 13, verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, and it gives us five, the Antioch five, if you will. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So here's the Antioch five. One of my commentaries put it this way. It said, it's best to understand this list to refer to those who are both teachers and prophets. It's not separated out. Both informing and inspiring because they themselves were informed and inspired. So here you have these pen. Now, we don't have the official title of elder in the church yet. And so this church, I mean, this is a foundling church. They don't have the New Testament. Well, how, what's, what's happening? And so out of the group arise these five that are kind of leading the church. And they're described at this point as prophets and teachers. It's kind of their role informing and inspiring the people of the church of Antioch. Let's think about these guys here. First one, Barnabas. We know a little bit about Barnabas already, son of encouragement, a good man. Barnabas was from Cyprus, over the Mediterranean, a Jewish believer. And we have Simeon, and it says he was called Niger. That means that's Latin for black. I mean, literally this says uh, Simeon right? A black man. That's what it says. Uh, most likely from northern Africa somewhere. Then we have Lucian of Cyrene. Cyrene was also in Libya. That was also part of North Africa. Then you see Menean. Menean, it says, a lifelong friend of Herod. Uh, that lifelong friend actually means that this Menean guy would have grown up in the courts of Herod. And in fact, he probably would have had the same teachers and everything else as this Herod. Now, this Herod is the Herod Antipas, who was there at the crucifixion of Christ. So this guy, Menean, would have grown up with that Herod. He was a lifelong friend of that Herod. So he would have also known the Herod we mentioned last week, Herod Agrippa I. He's mentioned here to say, uh, this guy is of some importance. He would have grown up in the court. And then finally we have Saul mentioned. His name is going to be changed very shortly here to Paul. Saul is his name. He's a Jewish believer. Grew up in Tarsus. Paul is his Greek name, is what he's going to eventually go by. Now, we already knew that the membership of this church was very diverse. But you see now that the leadership of this church as well is extremely diverse. And so I'm going to add point number five. Now, if we're thinking about this church, this church that changes the world, what better church can you think of than a church that has leadership that is as diverse as this church? In one hand, it just makes sense, doesn't it? Just makes sense. Multicultural church. It didn't just look one way. I've often wondered how one might accomplish this today. It's an interesting question, isn't it? I'm going to be honest with you. Danville, let's forget the rest of the world for just a moment. I know some of you aren't from Danville, but let's, sorry, we're forgetting your cities for a minute. 
Danville, man, we could use a church like that, couldn't we? I don't care what your political leanings are. Danville, like many places, is struggling in this arena. And we could use a church that just pictured peace. I want to read for you something from Ephesians chapter 2. I tried to condense this, but the whole thing is so, so important. It's talking about the salvation that Christ made happen by his crucifixion on the cross. And listen to some things in here. Uh, this is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 is where I'm going to start. Paul is writing, and he says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, he's talking about people who are not Jews. There's, see, there's a race thing involved in this passage. You, you Gentiles, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, God's people, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So the, the separation wasn't just for the Jews. And you see that playing out in Acts. It goes on to say, For he himself is our peace. Just listen to these words. Who has made us both one. What's the us both referring to in this passage? Jews and Gentiles. Two different races. Made us both what? One. And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. It might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. When I read this passage, you know what I hear? Christ, with the myriad of things that he destroyed on the cross, your sin... God's judgment for you. One of the, uh, among the myriad of things, there's just all these different facets of things. Like when you look at what Christ destroyed on the cross, the things that he defeated, death and the grave, all these things. Uh, one of those facets that's so important is he killed racism with people who believe in God. He destroyed it. That's what that says. And if you're sitting here today and you have any element of that in your heart, shame on you. Christ died, and one of the things he destroyed when he died was that hostility. And when you hold on to it, I believe that you are rejecting the very cross of Christ and what he accomplished. It's disgusting what that represents. And it becomes more so when you think about the Christ and what he did to get rid of the hostility. What does that say? He died on the cross to eliminate hostility. And he came. He preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You best be glad that there was an end to racism in the gospel because I don't think there's any full-blooded Jews in this room. You best be glad that God destroyed it, because if not, what's happening in Acts, the gospel would never have made it to you. You're a recipient of people who decided we're not going to be racist anymore, but we're going to spread the gospel to everybody. 
And it started in Antioch. That's what we're talking about right now. I hate to tell you this, but there aren't any white people in the Bible. Did you know that? I don't think there's a single one. There's some Jews, lots of Jews in the Bible. I've read the Bible. I don't know if you Lots of Jews. Africans and Egyptians. See a lot of those when I read the Bible. There's some Greeks, Italians, a lot of people of Mediterranean descent, Middle Eastern descent. I, I can't think of one person in the Bible that is from Northern European descent like most of us are in this room. So you best be glad that the gospel broke down barriers of race and spread to all sorts of people because if it had not, you would not be believing in the gospel right now. And this church just exemplified it. It pictured it in its leadership. It wasn't just led by one group of certain types of people. You see just all kinds of people in there. Perfect church to spread the gospel to the nation, to the world. Verse 2. While they were, while they, now that's important, by the way, that word, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, so the, and the wording here means that this is a regular thing that they did. So while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. The birth of overseas missions. We're going to talk about this next time we get together. Uh, right? You're going to see Paul, or, uh, Saul, right? And it's going to, he's going by Paul now. Paul is going to go by, and with Barnabas, they're going, to, they're going to set off overseas to take the gospel to places where it had never been. The birth of missions across the globe. And that first sailing across that first sea, once again, has led to us believing now. If he hadn't set off and brought the gospel across there and then eventually into Rome, and then where did it make it from there up into northern Europe? Why, why are we Christians? Because of these acts, these events. But if I go back to my list, I could put number six up here. Prayer-saturated mission. I didn't put missions because for them, it's not yet what we think of as missions. They're just on mission. What's the great commission, the mission that they were on to take the gospel to the world? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And this is a church that is on mission. They're just on mission. They're like, what is our mission? This is our mission. In this church that is on mission, you see prayer-saturated mission. They're praying and fasting, worshiping the Lord before they receive this message from the Spirit. They're praying and fasting when they receive instruction from the Holy Spirit. And they're, <clears throat> and they're praying and fasting after. The, so they get the message, but then what do they do? I said, well, then they go back and they pray and fast some more before they send them off. These people are on mission. And to know what they ought to do, they're praying, they're fasting together. They're together. You hear that? Now, as I was trying to pull all these loose ends together, I was struggling. I'm thinking, man, how do all these little bits pull together? And at first, I was going to title this The Six Ingredients of an On-Mission Church. And when you, when you do it, you have to say it that way. The six ingredients of an on-mission church. These are the six ingredients that we need to be an on-mission church. Let's work at these. But then I was looking at this list going, how do you make that stuff happen? 
How do you make that happen? Now, you can't just like decide one day, we're going to be a multicultural church. You can't just make that happen, can you? Six ingredients of an on-mission church. So I went back and I thought, to myself, well, scratch that. Not entirely. There's still good ingredients. I hope that we have these ingredients. But I was just sitting there pouring over the, the, the text. And I, so I had to go back a little bit. And I, as I was going back, I, I, I think I found the key to understanding the six ingredients to a non-mission church. I'm going to say it that way every time, by the way, in case you're wondering. There's still good ingredients. But I don't think there is much things that you bring to the table as much as there are things that are results of something else something deeper. And I think it trails all the way back to something that I skimmed over at the beginning and, and two weeks ago I kind of mentioned it and moved on, but I think it all goes back and the, the key, Barnabas. I think he's the key. Let's go back to Acts 11, 23 and 24. And when he came and saw the grace of God, so the gospel is just, just these people, they, they know almost nothing. They, have, they don't have a New Testament. They just heard that there's this Jesus and he was on earth and he he lived, and he died, and when he died, he took the sins of the world on himself, but then to prove that he was taking the penalty of sin, after he did that, he rose from the grave to show that there's going to be a resurrection for all of us. And so these people, knowing this, this bare-bones aspect of the gospel, have made it up to Antioch. They're traveling up there. Maybe they're merchants. Who knows? They made it up, and they're just telling other people about it. And so they're, they're just talking about these things. They don't know how to make a church together. They don't know how to do all these things. The gospel. So here you have this fledgling little group of people that are believing the gospel. And so the church in Jerusalem hears about it and they send Barnabas up. And this is what he says when he came and he saw the grace of God. That's what he saw. He looked at him and went, God is gracious. I didn't bring the gospel up here. God is working. He sees the grace of God and he was glad. I mean, he's just, I just see Barnabas getting up there. I don't know what Barnabas looked like. I had a picture of him getting up there and starting to see what's going on and just going, this is good. I don't think at that point he, he thought to himself, I need to develop the six ingredients of an on-mission church. <laughs> I really don't think that's what he thought. What do you see him doing? He exhorts them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit. This is telling you why. Why did he say those things? Because he was a good man. Like I told you, only place in the book of Acts that Luke calls somebody a good man, right here. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Let's highlight that verse, though. Then I had to do some digging. Let me share some other versions. I'm going to take you a little journey of my discovery of this verse, okay? So let me take... Here's, I like looking at other verses. So I read all the commentaries. I wasn't finding a ton there. I started reading some other versions. I was doing all kinds of I had all my books out. Uh, the English Standard, which we just read, says, When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. That's what we just read. Notice the New American Standard says, Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, very similar, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all. Still pretty the same. But then it says it this way, All with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. That one sounds cool all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. Young's literal translation says, who, having come, having seen the grace of God, was glad and was exhorting all with purpose of heart to cleave to the Lord. 
You see this as well in the King James Version. says something very similar. When he came and had seen the grace of God, it was glad and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart, hold that phrase, by the way, with purpose of heart, they would cleave unto the Lord. I have a couple other versions up there. I think a lot of them are good. For Katie. Throw the Greek one up there. Um, this word right here, cardio. What do you think that one means? Heart, right? Um, this is that word that's translated purpose of heart, right? Purpose of heart, right? And this one here, this is Lord, kyrios. Okay, to be steadfast in heart to the Lord. Let me go back to English because we don't get that. When he came and had seen the grace of God, King James actually really nails it with this, with the, a very literal translation at the end, that with purpose of heart, they would cleave to the Lord. <clears throat> Let's go back to this word. Exhorted. You know what it means to exhort somebody? Preach. Tell them something. But you know what's bound up in this word exhort? Is this idea of alongside. So if you exhort someone, you're, you're telling them to do something. You ought to be doing this, but it's an, you ought to be doing this, and I'm coming with you. It, there's an alongside part of that word. So it's, it's not go, it's come on. So Barnabas, when he's exhorting them to be, you know, have purpose apart, be steadfast, he's saying, he's saying in a way that he's saying, let me show you how it's done. I'm coming with you. I'm not telling you to do something I'm not going to try to do with you. Come on. Let's go. Exhort. The heart, Wayne Detzler says this, for the ancient Greeks, the main meaning of the heart was the physical organ. Okay, so boom, 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 boom. However, under Homer, it also meant the seat of emotions, as in loving one with all your heart. We get this. That's kind of how we use the word heart. If I say, I love you with all my heart, baby, you know, I'm not, I'm not just talking about I love you with all the blood pumping through my veins. I mean, that's pretty romantic, but I don't think it's more than that, right? The Greeks of that time, the heart was also the seat of moral and intellectual life. I, I actually get this because, see, you know, not, not, I mean, have you ever just felt something right here? And it has nothing to do with the blood that's pumping your lips. Like, you feel it right in the core of your being. That's why they would say that. And I think most of us know that you felt something, you just feel it right there. And that's why, and so when you see the word heart in the Bible, that's what it's talking about, the cardio. It's talking about the seat of these things. Moral, intellectual life, emotions were embraced in this term. Later, the emphasis fell on reasoning. So not just up here, so they wouldn't just say the mind, they'd say the heart was where decisions were made. It's the center of rational thought. In the New Testament, the major meaning of the heart is figurative as a center of life, thought, feeling, and even spiritual response. In some cases, the heart refers to the whole person. So when Barnabas uses this word heart, he's talking about, imagine, if you will, if there was actually a throne in the center of your body. What he's talking about is Christ is on that throne, ruling and reigning the very center of your being. Back in our verse, we see that purpose of heart, that with purpose of heart. This word purpose is exactly what it sounds like. There's, there's this thing that you've set up before you, and this thing that you set up, this, this decision, this, this goal, this focus, 
is right there. And then it says to do this, cleave unto the Lord. Exactly. This is why some of those versions say remain true. Some of them say steadfast. Some of them say faithful. That's what this word that they're trying to show or demonstrate with this word. It's the cleave. I'm going to use the Holman Christian Standard Bible to summarize it. Remain true to the Lord with firm resolve of the heart. Not the six ingredients or the nine steps or the ten factors or whatever it is. Those things are great. I love hearing those things. But if you get back to how do we do this, what does this look like? It starts right here. Remain true to the Lord. Remain true to the Lord with a firm resolve of the heart. In the very core of your being, your intent and purpose is to be next to the Lord. That's what this means. What does it look like in everything you do? Your job? The Lord's right there with you. How do you work when the Lord is right there with you at the center of your being? It might change how you work. Your day, your night, your eating or not eating. I was actually thinking about this Antioch church and I thought, you know, we're going to have something, you know, Edgewood. Let's have something, okay? And, hey, you guys want to come? Well, I don't know. Hey, there's going to be food. All right, I'm there. (laughs) The Antioch church said, hey, we're going to get together to worship the Lord. Is there going to be food? No, in fact, we're going to do the exact opposite. Isn't that what they were doing? And they still got together. Why? Because I think this. They heard Barnabas steadfast purpose and this food might actually be a bit of a distraction right now so let's eliminate that and just focus what does god want of us as a church it fills your thoughts occupies your intellect it expands into your emotions your will becomes dedicated to this person this purpose. Your decisions become dominated by thoughts of the Lord. Like I mentioned a minute ago, if there were a literal throne in the center of your being, someone who is remaining true to the Lord with a firm resolve of the heart, someone who's like that could open up their chest and you'd see Christ sitting on the throne, reigning supreme in your life. I was just talking with my father-in-law about this the other day, just a couple days ago. Faithfulness to the Lord, this, this sort of thing. I'm just going to be honest with you. I've been a pastor now for nine years. Sounds crazy. If you were to ask me, Matt, what's one thing that lacks in people today? Right there. Forget the six ingredients to having a great church. We had, not just Edgewood, but the church in general, just had people that would remain true to the Lord with steadfast purpose. We'd be like that church in Antioch. We could change Danville. Yeah. Faithfulness to the Lord is lacking in so many ways with so many people. I struggle with it. Please don't hear this as criticism. I struggle with this myself. Just remain... True, he's the steadfast, the center of all that I am.
Does he, you know, I could get up here and say, it means go to church, but that just scratches the surface. Your morality, your decisions, your free time, your money, everything. I don't need to come up with the nine steps or the six ingredients. It's interesting, something that I thought about just this morning, just in the last minutes before I, it, it dawned on me, that there's this thing that I, I, I've had several times. I don't think I've ever had an actual vision, vision, like vision. But there's some times where I meet people and I go, I, I, it's like I get this glimpse of what they could be in the kingdom of God. And I think, I just think the ministry that they could have, I, I just, I'll get this little glimmer of a, a potential ministry that's needed in this town, and, and I, I know I can't do it, but I'll meet somebody, I go, man, they would be great at that in my head, and I'll get this little glimmer. And the one thing that, when, when it doesn't pan out, the one thing is that there are so many that go, and I've even told, there's been a few people I've told, they say, man, I could totally see you doing this in your, in your future. Like, man, if you would just, and you know what it is? Just be faithful to the Lord, just just. Decide once and for all, he's supreme. People that I know that have done that, God has done amazing things. And it wasn't because they figured out the six ingredients. They were just faithful to God. And then just like this church, the Holy Spirit comes in and says, here's where you got to go. This is what you need to do. So many people I've met, I watch them spinning their wheels, trying to get all the things that they think they need in their lives worked out, trying to solve all the dramas that are going on, trying to uh, deal with all the trials. And I just think, if you would just be faithful, just be faithful. Take all, just, God, man, God can knock this stuff out. I mean, he could just deal with all these issues in your life right away. Stop trying to figure it. Just, just be faithful to him. How about you? I have to ask. Are you spinning your wheels? Are you fretting over what is going to happen? Are you attempting to control the details of your life? Maybe you're angry and bitter because it hasn't worked out the way you wanted or hoped. I'm going to tell you, this is not simplistic advice. This is advice from the one man in all of Acts that Luke said he's just a good man, full of the Spirit and full of faith. I give you the same advice that he gave almost 2,000 years ago. Remain true to the Lord with a firm resolve of the heart. I don't normally do this, and I don't have anything prepared. But I want to say that if you're sitting here right now, and you're going, you know what? I have not been that. Spiritually speaking, I've been a flake. Number one, I get it. Been there. Okay? No judgment, no criticism. I get it. But if you're sitting here today, and you're hearing this, and you're going... It's like the Spirit of God is saying that to you. It's like Barnabas popped out of history books, the Bible, jumped up here, and you feel like Barnabas is looking at you going, just this good guy, and he's just going, just be faithful to the Lord with a steadfast heart.
If you're sitting here today and you, it's, it's like that's happened, I want you to know that's not me and that's not even Barnabas. That's the Spirit of God. He's impressing on you. And I want to encourage you today. might be the day that you need to get on your knees before God and say, this needs to change. I need to be steadfast apart. I haven't been. I've been dating Jesus a little bit, kind of like I'm interested in, in some of this church stuff. I kind of want to like test it out a little bit. And today was the day that you came and you sat and you went, you, it's like God's telling you, stop fooling around. I want you. I want all of you. And I want to take you into my kingdom and eternity and the future. I want to use you for some amazing, glorious things now. And I want to free you of the bondage of all of this stuff that you think is so, so important. And if you know God's telling you that now, I don't know, actually, can I persuade you to come up and play the piano? Put her on the spot. I almost never do this. When she starts playing in just a minute, I'm going to just take a minute. Some of you are not familiar with this because it's been a long time since you've had an invitation. Forget everything that you know about it. This is an opportunity for you to come up here, and I want to encourage you. We've got this big, long row, and the only person sitting is my wife right now. So she'll share. Come up here. Get on your knees. Bow down. Put your arms on that seat right in front of you and just say, God, maybe you don't even know what to pray. Maybe you'll get up here and you go, I don't even know what to say, but Lord, I know that I have not been steadfast. Can you take me to that place? So I'm going to have her play, and I'm just going to play for a little bit. I'm just going to wait for a little bit. While I'm staying up here, I'm just going to be praying for myself, number one, that I would be right there with resolve of heart. But I'll be praying for you. If you're in this room today and you know that God is calling you to be resolved of heart with this steadfastness, this faithfulness, to have this purpose of heart, and maybe you've been floundering your whole life, and today could be the day that God wants to just turn that all around. The first step of many. When she starts playing, I invite you to come up here, get on your knees. If you want me to pray for you, I'll stop what I'm doing. I will come and pray for you. Whatever you need to do, I'll wait through a few verses, and then I'll close this in prayer.